The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is R.J. Smith, whose book, The One, The Life and Times of James Brown, has just been published by Gotham Books. R.J. is visiting from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for coming into the Slate studio. June, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. Well, so first of all, congratulations on the book, which is beautifully written and very impressively researched. I'm really curious, what drew you to James Brown? I had always loved the music and was hypnotized by the performer. I love art, and I love music, and I love the way that all kinds of social conversations uh, are uh, focused, and we use music as a, as a way of talking about all kinds of things to each other. And Brown did all that, and he just talked to everybody outside of music. He had a political sphere, a cultural sphere, a business sense. I wanted to just understand that person better. Let's start, since you do use the structure of his life um, as the structure of the book, um, let's start at the beginning. He was born in 1933. And for all his world travels, it seems that throughout his life, James Brown was drawn to this place where he grew up, the Georgia Lina sort of yes. area. It's yeah. right on the border of Georgia and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So what was it, do you think, that about that part of the world that spoke to him so much? Hmm. I guess it was most of all... You know, it's the, it's the case of it was what he knew. Yeah. It was home. It was the place that tried to throw him out place that wanted to get rid of him and that appealed to him because he wanted to if you told him to do something he was the kind of guy that would do the opposite and dig his heels in he was a southerner and for all the i can't believe i'd ever say a sentence for all the segregation for all the racism which he responded to is a product of and criticized he was a southerner too Mm -hmm. and he always felt most at home in the south He did live in New York for extended periods, right? In the 60s, much of the 60s. But he he ended his life there and he seemed like he always was drawn back to that part of the world. Yeah, it's just, it's what he knew and he liked the people there best. And he got a special kind of attention uh, that, that I don't think he felt he got in New York. So early in the book, you talk about how Brown's mother left the family when he was quite young, leaving James with his violent father. Uh, You write... Pop's violence was something his son could forgive. His abandonment by his mother, that was unendurable. What life taught Brown was that men beat people up and men beat women and that a beating was to be endured. So on page 23 of a 400-page book, you raise the thing that he's most known for Mm. outside of music, of course, his record of beating women. He he Mm. was a violent man. He was definitely a violent man. That's a part of his story for sure. To understand it, certainly not to justify it, He came from a really poor, impoverished background, and he had no control over his immediate surroundings growing up. And I guess when he became able to 
somewhat start to control his environment. He, he well, he became a real control freak. Mm. And fists were his way. He used fists against musicians in his band, against the women in his life, uh, against a lot of people. He was kind of a tyrant with his band members. I mean, you, you record for just decades and decades the way that he mistreated, I don't know if that's an accurate word, but for example, any slight thing that he thought was wrong, he would find them and be docking their pay constantly. It seems like he was a difficult man to work with in, in many ways because of that. Well, I, yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And he had so many uh, a complicated, ever-shifting set of fines where he would fine the musicians for uh, unshined shoes. He was inspecting them from the stage when he would do one of his spins. He's watching to see that all your horns are in a certain line. Yeah. If you missed a note or a beat, you, you, you would hear about it. He would turn around. When you, on video, you see him flashing ten fingers or five fingers. Uh. Those are fines he's giving. Guitar players who broke strings, he would fine you for breaking, which is you know, a ridiculous, meaningless thing to find yeah. a guitar player for. It's what happens when yeah. you're playing. It's striking to me that somebody who was who made music that ultimately is so incredibly open and freedom making and it creates a feeling of freedom and is free uh, made it with often such uh, authoritarian means mm-hmm. his early musical interests as you say included both the church and the barbershop which as you point out these were two safe havens where black men could gather Around 1927, he met a man named Sweet Daddy Grace, who was mm. the first of sort of several men that were very strong influences in his early life mm. because he felt somewhat abandoned by his own father. Right? Mm-hmm. So who was Grace? He was a uh, religious leader, African-American. Well, I don't know that he, he – if he became an American citizen, come to think of it. But he was he was of African extraction uh, from the Cape Verde Islands. Mm-hmm. He was probably a mix of great many things. And uh, he came to uh, New England, became a religious figure, a preacher, ultimately started his own church and had an incredible impact that's still felt today. He's long gone, but the church remains. And um, Daddy Grace, as he's often called, uh, De Graca, De Grassa was his uh, – his Portuguese name, he had this interesting, still controversial to some people, uh, faith. He was preaching what we call today the prosperity gospel mm-hmm. uh, far before that term came around. And he was really – he was about making money. He believed that was a part of being a good religious figure and about giving the money to him. <laughs> also an important part – he was a big showman, an incredible mm-hmm. spectacle maker. And in Augusta – he had churches all over the south and frequently came to Augusta. There were bands. Amazing. Some churches are uncomfortable or out-and-out outlaw uh, music, uh, certainly rhythmic music. He loved bands and he loved music and his church was full of jazz sounds and uh, bluesy stomping music and lots of drums. And that's one important influence on the James Brown sound. And then when he was 16, Brown was incarcerated mm. and there he met a guy called Walter Matthews who was the superintendent of the facility where he was incarcerated and he called him the person that raised me. Why did he form such a bond with a guy who was his master in some ways in that situation? Yes, yes. That's a window, isn't it, on Brown's relationship to power and uh, 
an authority, I guess. At the same time, he was incarcerated, and it was, and he was an African American in the South, incarcerated. He was 16 years old when he was. It was not a good place to be. And the way Brown put it later, at the same time, it was a place that gave him a sense of order mm. and structure to a chaotic life that he'd felt before and always had to some degree. And um, this man, this was an important, powerful male adult figure in his life uh, at a time when he needed one. Right. So it's there's there's a complicated thing there. In that institution where he was incarcerated is also, I don't know if it was when he first started to sing and to be involved in music, but certainly was a time of great flowering for him at that point, right? Yes, absolutely. Gospel. He, he seemed to have listened to a lot of gospel on the radio that he had behind bars and was soaking it all up. And after he left, with contacts that he'd made from other people who I guess were also incarcerated with him, um, he started his first groups, right? Yeah. Well, there was a family. He definitely made musical connections uh, w while there. And as well, uh, a family, uh, Bobby Bird's family, the Bird family lived in Tacoa, Georgia, which was the town right outside of the main institution he was incarcerated at. Uh, and when he was... Uh, when he left the institution, it was with the uh, remand, the remanded orders that he had to live with a family in the area, couldn't go back to Augusta, and he had to have a job. Well, he'd made this connection uh, with a local family, the Bird family, casually on the baseball field. Bobby Bird's mm. uh, was roughly Brown's age. The local neighborhood team basically was playing the, the jail team. Oh. And uh, they met on the field and hit, hit, had a bond. And, and, and when he got released, Brown was living with Bobby Bird. Wow. And, and Bobby Bird then was in his groups for many years, right? That's right. What many people say is uh, no Bobby Bird, no James Brown. I totally believe that. Bird was a terrific singer and musician on his own. Bird brought Brown into his groups. He had a whole circle of groups. And at first it was sort of, again, this... Vocal, very much a vocal style, kind of a barbershop type vocal uh, harmonizing kind mm -hmm. of. And what kind of music were they performing at that point? Well, they were performing gospel music most of all uh, at first. Uh, and, and the most popular group they had was a gospel group that had radio shows sometimes oh. in, in the in the Tacoa, in the Appalachian region there. But they were listening to all kinds of stuff, rhythm and blues and blues and swing music and soaking all that up in and trying to communicate all of it with a, a vocal harmony style. Huh. And then, though, he runs into another huge influence and a, a guy who kind of takes him to the next level, someone that we all know now who's... who's whose name has lasted, Little Richard. <laughs> yes, Richard Penniman. Richard did a lot of things for James Brown. Uh, the first thing he did, uh, he was playing, it was before he was a big star, mm. playing a show uh, in Tacoa when he was still trying to break through. And uh, the Brown and the band The Flames, which had been formed with Bobby Bird's component parts, were there uh, to hear Little Richard. And in the middle of the show, or some, at some point, Brown asks to be invited up on the stage and can we play a few songs well little richard was too smart to let anybody take his stage but he was too polite not to say what he did say which was but i'm going to take a break and you guys should feel free to come up and sing a few songs while i'm on my break well he did and he even listened to them when they performed and he liked what he heard so much he invited them to macon which was his home in georgia and and they shared managers after that and then when at some point little richard 
decided that he was only going to sing, he wasn't going to sing secular music anymore or something. And, and so James Brown and his band got the the gigs that Little Richard had lined up at that point, right? That's right. That's right. Little Richard gave Brown his hairstyle uh, to, right. a, to a great degree as well. And also, um, yeah, when Little Richard became a star and was moving to the West Coast, he suddenly abandoned uh, all these all these small-time, to him now, mm-hmm. dates uh, in the South. And Brown, they had the same manager. Brown was there. His band was in place. They knew the songs. So they didn't look anything like each other, <laughs> despite the hair. Right. And uh, Brown did a, a whole se- several series of shows in the South where he pretended to be Little Richard. In 1956, the famous Flames, as Brown's band is is then called, um, has its first hit, Please, Please, Please. But then that thing that that usually happens in musical biopics occurs when the single comes out, the band get the first pressing, and they're very shocked to realize (laughs) that it's credited to James Brown with the famous Flames. And then from then on, it's very much Brown and almost a sort of continually changing group of musicians and it's all about him now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a story that Bobby Bird gave and he always mm. stuck to it and, and one must believe Bobby Bird on, on a great many things. Some people say it happened a little differently or whatever, that they knew that this was going to happen. Mm. Probably that's exactly how it happened and the band started to, to pull back after that. Bird was upset. He ended up leaving for a while, although he would continue after that to perform with Brown on and off for his whole life. And the other Flames mostly went back to Tacoa and, and never performed again, or at least never performed uh, on, on a professional uh, hit-making level. Yeah. Even though James Brown didn't really play musical instrument particularly well, he played a few okay, but he wasn't really an instrumentalist. He couldn't read music. So he had to rely on other people to do certain things around the band, musical arrangements and so on. But he, as we've said, he was very much the boss. He was very much the guy he was putting on the show. Yeah, it, that must have been, an, an, for him, an exquisite agony. <laughs> Here's someone who had to always take care of himself. He had to make the money uh, to, to pay for his own, you know, to, to feed himself, even as a young man, mm. even as a boy. Uh, his clothes were terrible as a kid, and they'd send him home from school for insufficient clothing, they called yeah. it. So when he could finally take care of himself, it mattered to him. And that always colored his relationships with people and how close he let people get to mm. him. But now, definitely, if he was going to succeed as a musician, he totally had to depend on other people who could read music and write it and speak to each other in the, the way that musicians talk. Yeah. Uh, so for the rest of his life, he struggled to maintain the upper hand and really to communicate his profound interesting and and important ideas to people that didn't speak his language. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. 
They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You get to choose which one you want. You can listen to the books on your PC, burn them onto a CD, or upload them to your iPod or other MP3 device. The book we're discussing today, R.J. Smith's The One, The Life and Times of James Brown, will soon be available on Audible, and it's so beautifully written, I know it's going to sound out of sight, baby, as James (laughs) Brown might say. Uh, To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download The One or another of the 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash the afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Gotham Books has very kindly given us four copies of The One to give away to listeners. If you would like one, send an email with the words James Brown giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, April 20th, 2012. And we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. RJ, we left James Brown at the sort of start of his period of stardom. And he starts on this, what kind of becomes a constant schedule of touring. He, mm. he goes all the way into his 70s doing this just tireless mm. tour schedule. He really was the hardest working man in show business, right? It wasn't just, a, mm. wasn't just an empty name. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny how we celebrate. Uh, we have this whole myth of the self-made person in America and we... Yeah. we over-celebrated sometimes, for sure. It's such an iconic figure. And I don't know that Brown's ever really been looked at that way, but but he really was. I mean, he, he did it for himself. But the other thing about it was whatever he had in his life, the money, the fame, the success, the talent, he always felt like it could go away. For all the pride and the boastfulness that he definitely had and, and exhibited, uh, there was a side of him that never counted on any of it. And that's what drove him in a way was... Uh, he he couldn't take anything for granted. He felt he had to win an audience and prove himself every single night out, and that's what drove him on the road. Yeah. One of the things that I found really exciting about your book is that you do communicate something that's very rare, I think, in music writing, which is the beat, the rhythm of the mm-hmm. music, and the title of the book, The One, it's the downbeat, the mm-hmm. one beat, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that was absolutely key to James Brown's music. He was obsessed with the one. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, when you asked him in an interview, what was the, you know, that, that meaningless question, what's the source of your music or what's it all about or where does it all come from? He always said it came from the one. Now, to musicians, when he talked about the one, he, he, he wanted that emphasis on the first of the four beats in the measure really hit it hard in contrast, say, to the two and the four that often are the prominent beats in, in a blues or rhythm and blues. But at the same time, he, he meant it in the sense, uh, he, he would talk about it generally, uh, you know, sort of as a living in the moment sense. Mm. You had to be in the one, to be right with your 
yourself. And beyond that, you know, when journalists ask him, well, what is the one? What right. does it mean? He would never say it was like his secret recipe and, and he wasn't going to give it to you because only he could do it. Right. And you talk later at Bootsy Collins, who for a while was part of Brown's band. He didn't exactly steal the one because it was it was always there, but yeah. he definitely took it to his next ventures and, and to the sort of next stage in music. In yeah, it. yeah, he spread it on. <laughs> now, the highlight of the James Brown Act, it sounds like from the very beginning, was the Cape Act. Mm. What was it and what did it mean? Yeah, it's it's such an amazing, powerful moment. Uh, there's a there's a video, uh, uh, you can get it on DVD, a show called The Tammy Show, T-A-M-I. You can see snippets of it on, on YouTube or whatnot uh, that has this, I think it was the first time a lot of Americans saw the Cape Act. It, what it was, was uh, it was a religious experience. It was an incredible theatrical moment. Usually he's singing, please, please, please. And it's the end of the show. And he's fall. He's doing a gospel. He's channeling gospel preachers falling to their knees. They've given it all. They've got nothing to give. And then he gets up. But I've got to go on for my fans. And then he fall to the ground again. And then he get up. <laughs> and at some point, his valet, usually a man um, very much with us, a uh, great great guy named Danny Ray, would would come come by and drape the cape on his shoulders, and which was also partly something you'd see in the church, and pat him on the shoulders and try to steer him away. Don't. You're killing yourself, man. Don't do it. Don't do it. But he happily throw the cape off and come back out. It was a, a huge theater piece just in the three minutes that it ran or whatever it took. <laughs> it just defined his shows. He knew how much it connected with people. Okay. In the 1960s, in the time of the civil rights movement and then the black power movement, Brown makes some moves that might seem out of step with the times. He recorded a song called America Is My Home. He recorded the song and then he went to Vietnam. Now, going to Vietnam... You know, this is the time when Cassius Clay, as he then was, had decided that he'd rather go to jail than go to Vietnam. I mean, that must have been a very uh, shocking move. And yet also, I mean, very moving, too. It's funny or interesting. We we, we celebrate, quite rightly, you know, someone like Bob Dylan for having been been chameleonic and for zigging and zagging and but brown brown can match him in contradiction for contradiction i think and uh yeah america is my home 1968 just a really um almost like a country ballad kind of feeling to it of uh, in the middle of the vietnam war he's not explicitly attacking anybody but he's really saying it, I dare you to disagree with me. America's the best, and we've got to pull together. We're all in this war together, and uh, if we don't pull together, we're going to lose, and, and we don't want that. And it's a real chip on his shoulder in that song. Mm. And then uh, the, the trip to Vietnam, yeah, he really felt that America was being attacked when protesters criticized the Vietnam War. It's a, uh, you know, I don't I don't fully understand it, but I do understand that lots and lots of people felt that way. Mm. And most of all, he wanted also to support the troops, he would say, and to connect with African Americans overseas. I think there was also definitely a dimension of um, wanting to get the love. He always wanted to be more iconic than he was. And what could be more iconic than being the biggest African American star to play Vietnam? Who under 40 cared really, I suppose, about Bob Hope, who was the face of trips to Vietnam and entertaining the troops? Well, he wanted to be, he wanted to usurp Bob Hope and be (laughs) 
the entertainer America most loved. He wanted to get loved for going to Vietnam. Yeah. And I love that um, because he had to travel in what sounds like a very rickety helicopter and he could only, it was limited to how many members of his extensive band he could take, but he insisted that one seat be given to the Cape Man, <laughs> to his ballet almost, because that was so key to the to the performance. Yeah, yeah. And he also, he really was, uh, he argued and complained that he couldn't take his own guns. He, he wanted to take his weapons and defend himself. <laughs> Even in Vietnam, he thought, I'll take care of myself, and they wouldn't let him. Awesome. And then he endorsed Richard Nixon. <laughs> that must yeah. have caused more blowback than going to Vietnam. It, it it was it was the huge one. I don't know that the American press, particularly now the black press, covered his trip to Vietnam. He wanted all the press he could get, but it was it was not widely reported in the, in the press. But the pas de deux with with Nixon <laughs> was complicated and hugely uh, problematic for Brown. His concerts were boycotted, or people outside with signs protesting. You know, even outside the Apollo. Yeah, in between America is my home, and and the endorsement of Nixon. You know, he would recorded "Say It Loud." I'm black and I'm proud, right. and this this anthem of self love, and and he kind of connected in a new way with with young African America, mm. and and now he was saying, "I like Nixon." <laughs> Uh, which was, you know, I mean, Sammy Davis Jr. like Nixon. Lionel I mean, Hampton. Right, right. And so that was a real head-scratcher for a lot of people. And Brown being Brown, the more you criticized him, the more he was going to do it some more and dig his heels in. himself, you say, as a businessman more than an artist. He had a lot of businesses over the years. He started all kinds of them, but they tended not to thrive long term. It seems like he kind of lost interest in them. Is that a fair judgment yeah. on how he conducted his businesses? Yeah, that, that's that's definitely was one of the big problems with him over the years. You know, he ran a, a chain of, of restaurants in the South, most of all. He ran uh, some radio stations. You know, he ran a record label to a degree. He wanted to make movies. He had other side projects and investments. He had kind of two major criticisms, I think, of Martin Luther King. One was uh, he was he did not a believer in nonviolence, mm. uh, and he felt you had to fight for your rights, and he was prepared to. But the other was he really came at it from a community empowerment point of view, mm. and that's where some of the Nixon overlap was. He, he believed that getting more money into black people's pockets was the way to empower them and to win civil rights victories. So business was important to him on all kinds of levels, but he was not going to delegate authority to other people very well, and that was a big problem. And he was trying to run all these enterprises from the road, you know, from a payphone and a hotel or wherever he was at the airport. He'd, he'd try to call the shots in the radio station in Knoxville or whatever. And it was it was impossible. Yeah. And then the last days of his life were full of drugs. He developed a PCP addiction, tax problems, failing businesses, jail, violence against the women in his life and touring right into his final months is kind of a tragic end to 
a life full of achievements. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm pondering that. The biggest tragedy, or that's not the right word, but the biggest shock was almost just having him not be on the road. Mm. Someone who he always thought he was going to live, I think, and he had shows booked for that January. He died at Christmas. But, yeah, you know, he had hits. He had a hit in the 80s, which was more than than anybody else from his musical generation or of his stature certainly had living in America. So it wasn't unalloyed uh, sadness. The shows were good at the end, but they weren't the three-hour extravaganzas he had once done. He couldn't do the splits the way he used to do it. His voice was – his range was more limited. And he definitely felt – he was not someone that – could live with that feeling of not being able to do the things you used to do. Mm. And I think that drove him to some of the drug use. And uh, that's, the, that's part of the sorrow of the last days. What's James Brown's legacy, do you think? Mm. <laughs> In a yeah. sense, it's... Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, you know, musically, it's all over the place and, and still with us. You know, hip-hop, it, we've moved past the era of sampling lots of James Brown records in hip-hop. The stars are still sampling the essence of James Brown yeah. In, yeah. in terms of boastfulness, in terms of self-pride, and up-from-the-bootstraps mentality. I think you hear it in black comedy. A lot of African-American comics, uh, in their style, you hear James Brown. Um, what Reverend Al Sharpton, my goodness. Right, right. You know, another great student of James Brown's. Uh, he's the James Brown of politics and communication almost now. Right. Uh, so it's all over the place. And uh, what's your favorite James Brown recording? Mm. You know, I'd say that my favorite, if I had to pick one, which I can, is is, is a song called I've Got Money, which was an early 60s single that didn't do anything particular on the charts, but it's an amazing drum rhythm that uh, is, it's the first really, to me, the first really raw, essential, uh, almost minimalist James Brown record. All the instruments are kind of pulled apart and playing basic rhythms that interlock to make an amazing thing. I've got money and now I need love. I've got money and now I need love. When I get my love and I'll be the happy one. I've got money. No more money I need Oh, I got money No more money I need Hey, I don't have to worry I don't RJ, have to let my thanks heart. once again for spending this time with us. That was R.J. Smith, whose new book, The One, The Life and Times of James Brown, is available in bookstores now. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.